Would you turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28? Being in Matthew's Gospel in a series from it, I wanted to preach from his section on the resurrection. It begins in verse 1, even though we'll be referring back to some things in the previous chapter, but verse 1, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Hear now God's most holy and infallible word. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawning of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while they were asleep. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. I don't know if you noticed, but there is a distinct journalistic element to this story. Such an epic event is described deliberately in a very matter-of-fact way. Journalism, at least journalism used to be, all about facts, not about theories or speculations. And so this is not a compendium, you see, of religious opinions. This is investigative reporting at its best. It's not espousing a new religious mythology. It's not primarily a philosophy, not primarily a morality, though there is much philosophy and morality embedded in the Christian faith. It's not primarily that. The resurrection is so profound that if it did in fact take place, the legitimacy of all other features of of the Christian faith 
are unassailably established. But if these purported events are disproved, then Christianity at its best is a pathetic and pitiful and vain wish. And at its worst, it is vicious religious deception and quackery. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 in his great treatise on the subject of the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the literal bodily resurrection of all of those who are joined to him by faith and repentance. He says this, if there is no resurrection, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Those who died are lost and we are to be pitied more than all men. Our preaching is useless. We are found to be false witnesses about God. (laughs) You see what he's saying here. The Christian faith, in terms of its veracity, its reliability, its trustworthiness, hangs fully on this event, that it did literally happen. As Jesus told his disciples on at least three separate occasions before his death, that he would be crucified, the third day he would rise again from the dead, that he would be seen by many, and that he would ascend back to his Father from whence he would gloriously rule until he came again with great power and great beauty and great glory. So facts, facts, facts. That's the stock in trade of good journalism. The Christian faith, therefore, partakes of none of the characteristics of any other ancient religions that are all about mysticism and speculation. The Christian faith is about history, things that occurred verifiably that can be tested because of corroborating and coordinating testimony that they did in fact happen. So, as you know, at least in the old days, journalism was all about a series of questions. Questions like when, who, where, what happened, and why. So that's what we see laid out here. First of all, the when question. It was on the first day of the week. Do you see the first verse? Look back at it. He died in the afternoon of Friday. There was a quick burial in order to do the work of the burial before the Sabbath day dawned, which was in the evening at sundown. And by the way, the Hebrews, if there was only a portion of the day, they counted that as a full day. So Friday, full day number one. The Sabbath day, full day number two. And the dawning of the first day of the week, Sunday, he rose three days as he predicted. But the burial was a bit hasty. There were a few unfinished components to the burial process. And so 
we see this group of devoted women hurrying to the tomb the first day of the week to complete their devotion to him. Where their faith was weak, their love was strong. And here is the principle. God always honors those who devotedly love him by strengthening their weak faith. Now, the who question. Well, it mentions the women, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary left vague. Some, one of the other gospel writers uh, fills in the detail that this was the Mary who was the mother of James and Joseph. Mark's gospel uh, speaks of another, uh, a woman by the name of Salome. Luke mentions Joanna and other women. So some scholars say that there were maybe up to two groups who arrived, uh, two groups of devoted women who arrived at about the same time or overlapping time. But the point here, you see, with these different accounts, that's what you would expect from different journalists telling the same story. They're coming at it from different camera angles, and each one has different details from the other, but it's the same account. The point of this is that it's, there seems to have been no attempt to coordinate accounts as if a unified plot was being hatched to foist a scheme on the unsuspecting public. This was not a well-coordinated deception scheme. What we find is unadulterated accounts of investigative reporting that vary the different emphases and the different fragments of details is designed specifically by God the Holy Spirit in inspiring the gospel writers to banish from the possibility such an interpretation of deceptive coordination. Now, where? Well, it's the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Look at the previous chapter. Chapter 27, beginning with verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered that it be given to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own tomb, which he had cut in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So, that's where. And as the women on Sunday morning approached the tomb, it occurred to them, and this is recorded in Mark's gospel, not in Matthew's, as they approached the tomb, they thought, ah, the stone. You see, when people are distraught, all of us, we forget obvious details, don't we? And so the words come out of their mouths, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mournful inquiry. Who will roll away the stone? It is both a literal statement on the part of these women, but it is also symbolic of the mournful inquiry of the whole universe. Who will remove the barrier entombing human happiness? The all-devouring grave reigns over the wrecks of time. But there must be more. As the writer 
of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament says, He has set eternity in our hearts. There is this universal impulse. No one has to teach people this. There's a longing, a hope, hoping against hope. Is there life after death? The grim reaper hews down all flesh alike, rich, poor, cultured, famous, obscure, monarchs, slaves. In the harvest of mortal flesh, none escape the great threshing blade of death. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, said Isaiah the prophet in the 40th chapter of his prophecy. Or Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. Even in the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, chapter 14, Job says, if a man dies, will he live again? This is the great question of the ages. No one ever was able to budge the great door to the death house of our mortality. Notice next what happened. The camera is panning the details. The journalists report. The earth shakes, verse 2, a great earthquake. It's as though when the Lord of life burst the gates of death, re-inhabiting his now glorified body, the natural world itself leaps with glee as the powerful victory is wrought in the heavenlies, signaling what the Apostle Paul spoke of in his Roman letter as the certainty of creation's bondage to death being broken. It began here. It's already now. But it's fulfillment not yet, but coming in the new heavens and the new earth in which not only will our bodies, the bodies of believers, be made gloriously incorruptible and in face-to-face communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever, but even creation will be delivered from every vestige of decay. The angel has the visage of lightning, descends to roll away the stone. By the way, they came to roll the stone away, not to let Jesus out, but to let the disciples in. (laughs) Jesus didn't need the stone to be rolled away. Remember, glorified body can go right through doors, which happened on one other occasion, the gospel writers record, when the disciples were Gathered, cowering with fear, Jesus suddenly appeared. <laughs> but then when he ate bread with him, it didn't fall on the floor as though he were some phantasm, some vision, some ethereal appearance that wasn't bodily real. Real body, incorruptible. Hey, there's some new laws of physics going on here. 
You think the designer of the original laws of physics can't alter it, tweak it a little here and there? Of course he can't. Then thirdly, we see the guards. You read about them in the previous chapter, verses 62 to 66. It might be worth reading that just for a second. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said that while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until... <laughs> so if he's going to rise from the dead, do you think your guard's going to keep it from happening? You see the insanity the absolute insanity of unbelief. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. By the way, um, uh, there's, there's art that shows like two little guards This guard was somewhere between 20 and 40 men. Okay? So there are lots of people encountering the same thing that they report then, corroborating their testimony of what they saw to the religious leaders. And by the way, it took somewhere between 10 and 30 men, scholars differ on that, to roll the stone in place, even though the stone was on a slight incline. It was so massive. By the way, when you, when you roll the stone away, you got to roll it a little bit uphill. This was no kind of dinky little thing about like this. But here again, we see the elaborate precautions that are pathetic, humorous at some level, but pitiful and comical of unbelief. Remember the psalmist, Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh at them. Some of you sitting here today in your unbelief are giving God a little bit of a wry chuckle. Well, why? why? Why the earthquake? Why the empty tomb? Why the presence of the lightning-like messengers? To announce these words. Look at verse 6. It's the centerpiece of the whole section. He is risen. He is not here. But the proper response to this world-shattering truth is what? The possessors of this news must become promulgators of the news. Notice what the angel says next in verse 7. Go quickly. Tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead. Listen, if you're keeping silent with this news, (laughs) maybe you've never felt the power of resurrection reality. Jenny and I have had a good time. You know, I'm sleeping at the hospital with her. That's why you see these bags under my eyes and the bleary redness and all that. Don't, Don't feel sorry for me. It's a privilege to be there with her and care for her. But, you know, we have the nurses and the doctors and the other aides and everybody coming in and out, and it's just great. We greet everyone. Of them. He is risen. They kind of, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the current sort of thing is happy Easter, you know, whatever. No, he is risen. Followed up with, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let us shout it from the rooftops. What we've heard whispered 
Jesus said. Shout it from the rooftops. Many of you remember the riveting story of the Thai soccer players back in 2018 who were trapped through rising waters in a cave. You remember that story? It was fascinating, the story of their entrapment and the heroic and brilliant efforts in rescuing them. It was an amazing story, wasn't it? Well, they made a video of it. And by the way, uh, our grandson, Gus, you know, we call him Gus the theologian. Um, He's seven years old, but he's a budding theologian. And anyway, he and his dad are watching the video. He was very taken by this story for some reason. And... And at one point in the video, it shows the parents and extended family and everything, uh, as would happen in that uh, Far Eastern world, praying to their ancestors. And uh, Gus said, why are they praying to the old dead gods? And then he said, pause it, Dad. He looked up at, at Brian, our son. And said, when I grow up, I'm going to Thailand to tell them Jesus is alive. (laughs) See why we call him the budding theologian? And then he said, before they turned the video back on, but I have to ask you this question before I forget. Are they going to kill me for my faith? What do you say to a seven-year-old? Good training opportunity. They could. They could. Our encounter with the living Christ gives us something to say and binds us in a holy obligation to say it. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Well, moving on, we see the events, but we also see the evidence, don't we? And we, first of all, need to face some of the erroneous explanations of the evidence. One of the oldest, in fact, it's the one that happened here in verse 13, if you look back at our passage, <clears throat> that, the, that the religious leaders were proposing that his friends removed the body and pretended that he had risen. But now, wait a minute. These are the people, <laughs> these disciples, who did not grasp the import of his prediction of his resurrection, they were in an absolute stupor of surprise. They were paralyzed with fear. All of the gospel accounts record this. And the women who came to the tomb came to anoint his body. They were in grief. There was no expectation. There was no anticipation. Even though all of them had heard Jesus predict his Not only his death, but also his his resurrection. Mary sat outside the tomb, weeping, presuming that the corpse had been stolen. She says in one of the other gospel records, they have taken away my Lord. She didn't know she was speaking to the Lord, who then revealed himself to her. The Emmaus disciples in Luke's gospel, are disconsolate. They're convinced that all is lost. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room, he has to rebuke them for their unbelief of not expecting what he had predicted in his resurrection. But it's striking, isn't it, that his enemies realized perfectly what he had claimed and took these great pains to try to prevent it from happening. 
putting this guard against the, their so-called phony resurrection they claimed that he had announced. And I want you to look at verse 13 again. You are to say that his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. <laughs> the, the late Presbyterian pastor D. James Kennedy said, in the entire history of jurisprudence, there has never under any circumstances been a witness who has been allowed to testify to what transpired while he or she was asleep. <laughs> and notice, so we see the, the stubborn intransigence of those committed to unbelief. There, there was a famous uh, 19th century French skeptic by the name of Ernest Renan who said, I would not believe Jesus rose even if I saw it. Now, there's genius for you. W. Graham Scroggie, the British Baptist, uh, said, The resurrection is not denied because the evidence is insufficient but the evidence is rejected and repudiated because the resurrection is denied. True scientific method is to examine the facts and then form a theory, not first form a theory and then flout and repudiate and deny the facts. And the thing that shatters this theory that, that his body was stolen by his disciples is the disciples died all of them, except for John, the Apostle John, affirming this deception. Most of them were tortured to death. And no one ever buckled. No one ever recanted. One reason, I think, why God allowed the apostles and many of the early Christians to go through such suffering is to stack the deck on the living proof of a living Christ through the testimony of those who bore that testimony faithfully upon their lips all the way to their painful deaths. A gigantic exclamation point. Their suffering establishes unshakably the reliability of the testimony. Uh, have you ever heard of the swoon theory? Oh, this is a good one. He didn't really die, he just revived in the cool tomb under the influence of the burial spices. Of course, the burial spices were about 100 pounds wrapped in layers of linen, suffocating the comatose victim of the garden agonies, the scourgings, and the crucifixion in the lance. And the centurion who trafficked in death gave the death certificate. If he ever knew when somebody was dead, he was a man that should have known. And after all of that, Jesus escaped from the tomb, moved the mammoth stone that took 20 strong men to roll away, and this emaciated convalescent comes forth looking like a radiant conqueror. And we are expected to buy the theory that the half-dead Jesus creeps out of the tomb in dire need of medical attention to give his disciples the impression that he conquered death in the grave and that he was the prince of life. This is so patently devoid of a shred of rational support. 
Lastly, there was the hallucination theory. Oh, the modern people love that because it sort of dips its oar in the world of psychology. You know, mass hypnosis sort of thing. Again, it's the last thing they expected, but the Gospels record that at least 500 people at one time, one place, before he ascended to the right hand of, of glory, saw the resurrected Christ. And by the way, all his enemies had to do to dispel this whole psychic mirage of mass hysteria idea is to produce the body. You say, well, they didn't know where it was. Let me tell you something. Those guys knew how to squeeze somebody. They were the ultimate expression of the religious mafia. They knew how to extort information. What did you do with the body? Would you like to take a short, a long walk on a short pier? So you can, you see the point. It, it just piles up as being ridiculous. All right, the evidence. What is the evidence? Well, you got the empty tomb. And that's the rock upon which many of a theory of doubt and rationalization has gone aground. There are really only two options. Either his body was removed by human or by superhuman hands. But those nearest the event, his friends and his enemies, both affirmed that the tomb was empty. No one denied that fact. No one close to the events. And the foes of Jesus would not have removed him. They were doing everything in their power to keep him in. And the friends of Jesus could not have removed him for the reason that we indicated earlier. I'm not going to take the time to elaborate it, but in the, if you accumulate the various gospel narratives, there is an impressive body of eyewitness testimony. Mary Magdalene, Peter, the other women, the Emmaus disciples, the disciples with Thomas absent, the disciples with Thomas present, seven by the Lake of Galilee, 500 at one time, James, and then belatedly Paul encountering the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus, and John on the Isle of Patmos as Jesus came and literally revealed himself to him. And then I think the last point that is just so powerful is the transformation that came over these guys. These guys were pathologically cowards and pathologically dull-witted spiritually. You, you can't come to any other conclusion when you read the Gospels. And yet there's this radical and permanent change, this demoralized band that had been plunged into despair after the resurrection. They're united, zealous, fearless, joyful. These incredible skeptics become ardent witnesses. The cowardly Christ-denying Peter before the cross defies the high priest after the resurrection. On and on it goes. But we have to conclude with what are the effects. Every good journalist wants to inquire, what's the impact of these events? Let us hastily review just a few as we conclude. And it's really impossible to exaggerate the importance of the resurrection. I think I've already emphasized that, but I'd like to say to you this very simply and straightforwardly. This is slam-dunk proof 
of the existence of God. This massive accumulation of corroborating evidence. Some who were at least honest enough to give an honest assessment, those who are um, historical scientists who specialize in the field of the evidentiary side of historical analysis, will tell you, uh, and there are a number of them, I can't quote them all, but they will tell you that this is the most redundantly corroborated event that ever happened in the history of the ancient world. Far more evidence to sustain its veracity than there is that Caesar fought his Gaelic wars or that Alexander the Great ever even existed. Jesus claimed to be God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. And the resurrection proved every word, every claim he ever made. So you know what this means. He's here right now. Careful, don't look behind. He could be sitting beside the person right behind you. Like the theologian Gus said, Jesus is a living God. We don't pray to old dead gods. He's the living God. But secondly, his resurrection implies that Jesus is the only way to God. As the apostles proclaimed in the book of Acts, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. This, the resurrection implies the uniqueness of Jesus. No other Savior made such claims and proved the veracity of his claims. By the way, this is why true Christianity will always be accused of being narrow-minded. Jesus is the only way. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, no one comes to the Father but through me because no one else did what he did. In fact, Jesus, meek, mild, friend of sinners, loved his enemies, said this, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be who find it. But narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be who find it. If we embrace the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, which I will tell you I am absolutely so compelled to that I would have to literally commit intellectual suicide to not believe it. In light of what I've told you of today. Jesus cannot be described as simply a great man. And then lastly, of course, there is life after death. 
Through the ages, there was guesswork and wishes and yearnings about immortality, but nobody knew for sure. One of the students of the great Greek philosopher, Plato, went to him and said, shall we live again? And his response, well, I hope so. But no man can know. When Jesus rose, speculation has dissolved into unassailable certainty. All right, a few words of application. Remember what the angel said to the women? Four words. Come, see, go, tell. (laughs) In other words, experience it for yourself. But when you do, expose it to the world. Jesus, as the resurrected one, brings purpose and meaning to life here and now. Because there's a solid connection between what goes on here and what will go on after. There's an unbreakable continuum there. So that this life, with all of its struggles and difficulties and crises and troubles and traumas, is absolutely suffused with meaning, vitality, purpose. And though we are profound moral failures, because he rose, we can be forgiven. The one who has a right to condemn us did all of this to acquit us and to induct us into the eternal family of the Godhead. God is our Father, and we are brothers and sisters with one another Ever. Think of what that does in a world that's absolutely awash with loneliness. There's somebody sitting here today. And one of your many struggles is a profound sense of social disconnection and loneliness. Oh, dear one. The resurrected Jesus, when you know him, will flood you with such a profound sense of belonging and connection with him and with his people. That no matter what you... Let me tell you something. One of the things that Jenny and I have known in that hospital room, we have felt your prayers. You have been there. You have been present. We know it. We are not alone. And never have been and never will be. (laughs) Oh, is this chandelier swinging time or what? All right, we've got to wrap this up. Max Lucado gives three powerful implications of the death and resurrection of Christ. My life is not fuel. My failures are not fatal. My death is not final. Don't you love that? My life is not futile. My failures are not fatal. My death is not final. Ah, so what do you, how do you respond? Just roll back the stone over the tomb of your heart and let the resurrected, resurrected person, Jesus, enter in. He has the power to remodel the invisible world and he has the power to re- 
remodel. You're dead, broken, devastated, lonely soul. Just say, Jesus, you rose from the dead. As that tomb was opened, not to let you out, but to let us in. Open my heart and flood my soul with your everlasting presence. So you know, the only rational choice is to bow before this one who is your Lord, your life, your all for time and eternity. Amen. Oh, Father, if there's some soul here today who maybe even knows a lot of this, has been around it, read the Scriptures some, listened to a lot of sermons, others that only dimly know of these things, would you, O Spirit, who by your great power raised from the dead our Lord Jesus, proving that he had fully achieved all he promised to achieve in experiencing the hell that we deserve, that we might have the life and joy and peace and fullness that only he deserves. Cause that reality to seize every mind and heart and make us new forever. Amen.